Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Dennis Kucinich. He is a former Democratic member of Congress from Ohio and the former mayor of Cleveland. Dennis Kucinich, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Aaron. It's good to, uh, good to be on your show. I look forward to our discussion. You in Congress led the uh, peace movement uh, inside uh, Congress when you were there over, over a decade uh, and led the opposition to the Iraq war. And when this debacle just happened with congressional progressives uh, issuing a letter calling on Biden to pursue diplomacy with Russia, not threatening to stop uh, approving military spending for Ukraine, just asking him politely to pursue diplomacy, uh, they withdrew it after 24 hours. And I was just curious, having led the uh, peace wing of Congress when you were there, your response to this debacle. Well, it's a new chapter in the cancel culture. The progressive uh, congressional caucus looks like it's been canceled. Um, and the efforts, which on their part were rather straightforward yet make um, to ask for diplomacy, were not just um, casually pushed aside, they were crushed. It's really important for people to understand the significance of what happens when 30 members of Congress sign a letter to the president uh, saying, look, we support you. At the same time, we really feel that we're in a moment where diplomacy uh, needs to be exercised in order to avoid a wider war. Now, when that kind of a, of a very straightforward and mild request by members of Congress gets uh, not just swept aside, but crushed, we all need to reflect on where we're going with this uh, conflict, this war in Ukraine, because if diplomacy is not even to be talked about or considered, that means we're headed for an escalation and all the consequences. Based on your time in, in Congress, um, what kind of insight do you have in, in the pressures lawmakers face when they try to take a, a stance, even a very mild one, as you say, as was the case here, in the direction of peace? One's susceptibility to pressure uh, generally depends on one's own life and political experience. The less experience you have, the pressure that can happen in Washington can be extraordinary. And it also has to do with one's aspirations to keep moving up uh, in, in the uh, leadership of Congress. Uh, people are vulnerable, I mean, there's no question about it, to, uh, to pressure that comes, uh, particularly when, uh, it is accompanied with characterizations of people being, of members of Congress being less than American. <laughs> I mean, really, you, you know, we have to start asking questions about who are these individuals who have set themselves in judgment upon their own colleagues in a way that, that just not just stifles dissent, but doesn't even permit it. Uh, the very basis of the Democratic Party, it would seem to be, and, and historically has been um, a, a wide, voluble, sometimes even wild uh, 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 exertion of, of an expression of dissent, but that's not happening now. So um, moving along here, because this, you know, again, this event is worth exploring for its implications. So diplomacy is not to be considered. You go back to 2014 in September, uh, the Minsk agreement that the um, as a tripartite uh, or, or tri-party agreement 
which also uh, the OSCE helped to uh, uh, produce. And then MINS II, uh, uh, a year later, was, was really aimed at ending the conflict in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk in, in what is Eastern Ukraine, or was Eastern Ukraine. And if you look at the agreement, it, it was really uh, you know, an exercise of diplomacy, but certain interests circling the White House had a different approach. They didn't want diplomacy. They decided uh, to overthrow the government of Ukraine, uh, put in uh, their, their own uh, individual who they could influence. And what happened from that point on was an escalation of the conflict, first of all, in, um, uh, in, in the Donbass. And you know, over 10,000 people were killed. And these are Russian speaking people. Uh, and at the same time, this debate arises about is Ukraine going to be accepted into NATO? Uh, you know, as we know later on, NATO didn't want them. Uh, and the US wasn't going to push it. And so Ukraine was used as a chessboard in, in an international uh, uh, game of power, unfortunately, at the expense of the lives of the Ukrainian people. Uh, who, who have never been really given a fair chance to escape this uh, uh, this horror of, uh, of, of aggressive uh, war that was catalyzed uh, by partners outside their uh, their territory. So, you know, where does this go? If if we don't believe in diplomacy anymore, what is where do we go as a country? Think about this for a minute. It was 60 years ago to this time that President John F. Kennedy and the uh, Soviet uh, leader Nikita Khrushchev came together and resolved the conflicts that could have led to World War III uh, in what was uh, uh, historically referred to as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, Kennedy's inaugural speech is worth considering here. If you look at the words, he says, uh, uh, you, you know, let us uh, uh, not negotiate out of fear. Let us never fear to negotiate. What does that mean? That means that as the United States of America, since we are major players in this conflict in Ukraine, uh, we have given close to over $60 billion to, to the Ukrainian government in, in various forms. Uh, how much it was delivered is anybody's guess, but that was the, that's the commitment the U.S. has made. Why would we believe that the force of our arms is somehow more significant than the force of our intellect, of our reason? Why is why do we rely more on 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 arms than our brains? It it really is a moment for reflection as to who we are as a country, and. Have we catched, have we caught rather, the advancing tide of, of geopolitical movement, which is away from a unipolar moment, which is more towards uh, cooperation and, and uh, multi, a multipolar type world where there's not one center of power? We can no longer uh, uh, insist that it's our way or the highway. It's very dangerous and it's very expensive. 
And so I'm, you know, I'm speaking out because yes, you're right. I, I led the effort against the uh, Iraq war and there were 125 Democrats who voted against it. And there were many who voted against continuing appropriations. And I led the effort against the Libyan war and another uh, number of other conflicts because I just see the stupidity of the stupidity of it. Also, excuse me, the lies that were told to the American people uh, behind those, uh, uh, those efforts. So, you know, it, it, this, we're in a moment of danger right here. And, and, the, and the congressional, um, uh, the members of Congress who were, were basically swept aside for their opinions uh, really represent a lot of Americans who've been raising questions about where, where's this whole thing going. And you mentioned, uh, you know, you, you leading opposition to the war on Libya. That was a war carried out by a president from your own party, uh, by President Obama, who was a Democrat. And now you have a situation where Democrats seem on Ukraine unwilling to challenge Biden in any uh, meaningful way. I, I mean, this is a counterfactual, but do you think if we we're under a President Trump right now uh, overseeing a similar policy, do you think the Democratic stance in Congress would be the same, supporting it fully? I, I mean, one cannot discount that partisan considerations uh, attend uh, any major political decision. You're right that um, Democrats uh, lined up uh, primarily uh, behind President Obama. Uh, but there are also a number of Democrats who lined up, including the leader, uh, the Democratic leader at the time, Richard Gephardt, who lined up with President Bush in the attack on um, on Iraq, you know, yes, partisan politics can play a uh, can play a role. Uh, if uh, President Trump was in right now, given the level of polarization that exists in this country, I think that you'd find that uh, many Democrats would find a reason to oppose uh, uh, the action uh, that uh, a, a Trump presidency would take, even if it, you know, was similar to what we know now the Biden presidency is taking. There's a larger question here, you know, beyond where are we going with, with this war? What now is America's role in the world? What is the appropriate role for the United States in the world? Uh, is it to be the policeman of the world? Is it to uh, uh, stand astride the events of our time like a colossus uh, uh, or worse uh, than that, a cyclops? who swings wildly and uh, occasionally hits a mark that creates uh, damage uh, to oneself. See, this is where, this is the discussion we need to have. This, is, this goes way beyond discussions of war and peace. It, it's about who we are as a nation, where do we see ourselves in the world community, and what can we do to start to find ways of, uh, of demonstrating the understanding that the world is indeed interdependent, it is interconnected. And if we shut ourselves off as a nation from the rest of the world community, namely Russia, China, Brazil, uh, India, uh, South America, or excuse me, um, uh, South Africa, uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's, there's affiliations being created right now, which uh, actually, you know, are not, are not only against America's interests, but they um, uh, but juxtapose with our policies right now. We're isolating ourselves from a uh, from a an emerging new world. 
and, and it's old thinking. You know, we, we have to realize the world's changing. And why should America be stuck with 19th century thinking in the 21st uh, century? Well, that's the thing. I mean, so many Democrats who are now voting in lockstep to with uh, Republicans to uh, fund the proxy war in Ukraine were earlier critical of U.S. policy in Ukraine. You had um, Congress overwhelmingly approving a measure in 2018 banning all assistance to the Azov Battalion, which is a neo-Nazi paramilitary force inside Ukraine. Now all that seems to be forgotten. Um, Ilhan Omar put out a statement uh, back in March saying that, you know, flooding Ukraine with billions of dollars worth of weapons could lead to terrible consequences. And now she's denouncing people, protesters who said the same thing to her as spreading uh, Russian talking points. So what do you think has happened to these progressive members of Congress over such a, a short period of time? I don't think members of Congress, whatever caucus they're in, are immune from the larger uh, um, messaging that's happening in our uh, media culture. So, you know, there, there's uh, been a tremendous amount of, uh, of messaging that implies that, uh, that somehow Russia uh, needs uh, to be, the government needs to be overthrown, that uh, some people believe, uh, you know, Russia needs to be destroyed as, uh, as an entity. You know, and, and when, when, when you sit in front of your TV and watch the carnage that comes from uh, the battlefields across Ukraine, nobody's gonna have any warm and fuzzy feelings for, for Russia, I mean, frankly. It's impossible to hear if you just deluge with that day in and day out. But do you think Americans know where how this started? No. Uh, do they understand what happened in 2014 when when the U.S. engineered a coup and overthrew the um, Ukrainian government? Do they understand that 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 it was the U.S. that was helping to fund efforts to, that ended up in uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the eastern part of the country being uh, killed? No, people don't know that. But do members of Congress well, and, not know and Aaron, that? Let's continue. So you, so these, you know, members of Congress who you know may rely strictly on the media for their own information about what's going on, although there's many other sources, might just go along with. It. It's the same thing that happened in uh, to many uh, during Iraq. Now I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying you got to understand how this happens. Uh, and you know, I and. And people who are in Congress are, some of them are much like their constituents are worried, but you have to go beyond that. You're a leader. You have to think about where your actions, where your votes take the country. And right now that's not being considered. Uh, Democrats are in lockstep for continuing a war, which will lead to expansion of the war. And, and, and my call for diplomacy is, you know, is no different than what President Kennedy was talking about in 1961, what President Nixon was talking about in 72 with respect to China, what President Carter was talking about uh, at the Camp David uh, Accords, what uh, was spoke about in, uh, by, by leading diplomats in the Dayton Accords. I mean, you can go on and on. This is not like something that's new to our experience, but what seems to have forgot, uh, been forgotten, and you know, you only have to uh, look at Gore Vidal's work when he wrote uh, this little pamphlet called The United States of Amnesia, uh, is that 
uh, we're a player in, in the world in a way that isn't always positive. And when that happens, it's up to Congress to correct the, uh, uh, the um, direction of the country. That's not happening right now, except, you know, so yes, some Republicans have voted against funding. And, and let me just remind your, your viewers and listeners, Aaron, you cannot simultaneously say you are against the war and vote to fund it. Yeah. There was a, an article recently by Fiona Hill, a former White House expert uh, under the uh, Bush and Trump administrations, who wrote that, according to her sources, speaking to U.S. officials, that there was an outline of a peace agreement reached between Ukraine and Russia back in April. And she didn't say what happened to that peace agreement, but we know from other reporting in the Ukrainian media, citing sources close to Zelensky, uh, that Boris Johnson came over uh, from the UK and told Zelensky that if you sign a deal with Putin, we will not back you up on it. And it's not the time to negotiate with Putin. It's the time to press him. And uh, I was surprised that this letter calling on Biden to negotiate with Russia didn't mention that episode because it did mention some public reporting and some statements from Biden uh, favoring diplomacy. And I'm just wondering if there's a, if you think there's a fear right now in Congress of acknowledging facts that are in the public record that contradict the dominant line that the U.S. Uh, really wants to seek peace inside Ukraine and is doing this in the best interest of the Ukrainian people. Well, you've just described an example of he who pays the piper calls the tune. And what we're looking at is not just uh, the discussions that happened in April, but you go back um, a half a year earlier, almost a half a year earlier, Russia started discussions. They, they wanted to, to meet and find a way to settlement. Uh, uh, and this was in December of uh, uh, 2021. Now, look, you know, I, once, once uh, the United States conjures an enemy, and, and you know, I saw this firsthand, in um, uh, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, in, 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 uh, in Libya with Gaddafi, in Syria with Assad, and on and on and on. When you make that enemies of the month or the enemies of the year club, all hell breaks loose and the goal is then to wipe you out, okay? Now, the blowback nobody thinks about. I mean, you could look at the US sanctions and how they have actually uh, resulted in people in Europe freezing uh, this winter. And uh, you will find, um, and, and at a direct relationship to the uh, increased price of uh, gas over the summer, which of course has had a uh, knock-on effect in the fueling inflation. I mean, you know, it's like we, we haven't really had a moment for reflection about how our actions are, are having um, a, uh, a rever an, an effect that's reverse of what we thought it would be. And that uh, meeting that you talk about in April, uh, you know, the president of Ukraine is simply, you know, he's boxed in. He's gonna do what he's told. And that's why this, this idea that, well, let, let Ukraine decide. <laughs> Look, that, uh, that uh, the man who's in that position right now uh, is going to do what he's told by the U.S. And if the U.S. Uh, tells him uh, don't uh, agree to anything, he's going to do that. He won't agree to anything, even if the carnage across the 
country continues. And I have to tell you, you know, I, when I was in Congress, I had a very large Ukrainian constituency uh, and a smaller Russian constituency. And I had the opportunity to visit Ukraine and visit Russia. You, it, is, it is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking to, to see the devastation that's been wrought and all of these civilians have been killed. It wasn't necessary, could have been and should have been avoided. And, and it is uh, just another sorry chapter in the failure of leadership, in the fail, failure of diplomacy, in twisted thinking that uh, invites the virus of megalomania. We need to take a, a totally different direction in the world. And we really need to, uh, 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 to pay attention to that biblical injunction about blessed are the peacemakers. We have an obligation uh, to the world community to, to go with this, these, these rhythms of change and not to try to continue to insist on a unipolar world with an American imperium. It doesn't work anymore. We're past that stage. The leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Pramil Jayapal, uh, blamed some staffers for this debacle, saying that the letter was released without proper vetting. Do you buy that excuse? Um, I think that uh, Congresswoman Jayapal has been uh, put in an extraordinary uh, position. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not going to uh, uh, dispute her account. I don't have any, you know, information to the contrary. Uh, but I, I do want to say the fact that it would come to this kind of consideration where she would be put in this position takes us to the larger question about what is happening with the Democratic Party that it, that, that it uh, tries to squeeze out people of goodwill, people who, who want to see uh, an end to a war which has killed over 15,000 Ukrainian civilians and tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops and Russian troops. What's wrong with a simple request? And so for that, for that and her work, uh, she is, is uh, being um, chastised and even castigated by uh, by uh, Democratic leaders. I, I want to say to her that uh, thank you for, your, for trying. And it's been a, um, an instructive moment when we see how you and 29 other members of Congress have been treated for your efforts on, on behalf of uh, a peaceful resolution. Thank you, Congresswoman Jayapal, for at least making the effort. But look, we, you know, as somebody who served in there, I understand totally what's going on there, and I am uh, I'm opposed to uh, to the kind of pressure that's being put on members of Congress not to uh, not to speak their mind in the interest of their constituents and in the interest of America and the world. I mean, the pressure was, I guess, so strong that people like Jamie Raskin, who signed it, immediately put out a statement welcoming the fact that it was retracted and saying that retracting it was the right decision. Well, here again, you know, con uh, Congressman Raskin, who is, is a decent person and, and wants to do the right thing, uh, he came up against this same uh, onslaught. And, uh, you know, he's uh, led uh, various democratic efforts over the last year. 
And I think uh, it's pretty clear that uh, when one signs a letter and you're part of the group and you're told you, you, you either take your name off that letter or issue another statement or have the letter retracted, you know, another statement's going to be made. And so I, um, but, but it, it's really important to move away from a discussion about the individuals yeah, and go to the larger question, where is this going? Who are we in the world? How can we find a way not just to settle this uh, conflict, this war, to heal things in the region? You know, there have been many different suggestions about how to do that. And, and to move uh, from that into a condition where we understand that the world's changing and we're no longer trying to muscle other nations, so, you know, like China, for example, uh, over Taiwan. You know, we, it, it can do no good for the United States and our own security for us to continue to um, uh, to participate in that widening gyre of chaos, which leads to, um, to war. Let me ask you about what Congress can do uh, institutionally in terms of restoring congressional oversight. After the Iraq war, I think there was a recognition inside uh, the halls of power in Washington that you know, sending off tens of thousands of US troops uh, and then thousands come home um, in body bags is just not sustainable in order to sustain public support. So there's been a real acceleration in covert warfare. We saw that in Syria, uh, multi-billion dollar program, Timber Sycamore, in support of the insurgency to overthrow the government there. And in Ukraine too, you have tens of billions of dollars being spent without very much accountability. Um, how, how difficult is it in Congress to uh, uh, manage to do some oversight of these covert programs like in Syria and now in Ukraine? And, and, and what can be done to restore some congressional oversight of these massive expenditures these ma and, and these disastrous uh, programs? Well, first of all, congressional oversight begins with one congressperson and one vote. You can say no. You can vote against continuing appropriations to uh, fuel a war. Um, there's also mechanisms for oversight involving the uh, Committee on Government Oversight and I was a member of that committee for 16 years. I was chairman of a subcommittee investigating the uh, uh, prime, uh, uh, the, the meltdown on Wall Street. And Congress, I have a feeling uh, under, um, if the Republicans take Congress, which it appears that they will, uh, I think they'll uh, be, prompted, uh, if for no other reason and partisan reasons, to look into uh, where the money has gone with respect to Ukraine. I mean, I've seen reports that suggest that perhaps as much as 70% of, of uh, money arms that goes over there is somehow diverted. Uh, don't be shocked. Uh, you know, in my, one of my first committee meetings in 1997, uh, an inspector general gave a report that over a trillion dollars, trillion, T for trillion dollars of, um, of Pentagon spending could not be accounted for. 
uh, you know, during Iraq, uh, there was famously a nine, $10 billion tranche of money that just disappeared. You start throwing that kind of money out after things, you're gonna, you know, corruption is inevitable. And Ukraine, uh, prior to this um, uh, war, uh, as a government, did not have a, a reputation of, um, of uh, for integrity, to put it mildly. So, you know, you, you have to uh, consider that war ends up not only wasting lives, but spectacular amounts of, of money. And when, and when the American people uh, start to understand the waste that has been involved, uh, beginning with lives uh, in, in this particular uh, conflict and war, I think that's going to be the opportunity to bring up the fact that in the Iraq war, uh, which depending on what study you looked at cost between three and $6 trillion uh, at the expense of over about 4,600 US service persons lives at the expense of over a million uh, Iraqi uh, deaths that were over and above what was expected during you know, any given uh, uh, period of during the period of time of the war. You know, when people start looking at, <clears throat> at, at the waste that's occurred from these endeavors, I think maybe they'll be ready to take a new direction uh, and, and to stop uh, this waste. And when you consider it back here in the United States, which is always kind of important for us to look at, how many people today are struggling? I'm hearing from people every day about they go to the supermarket and they get sticker shock, whether they're buying bread or milk or meat or whatever, that all of a sudden things that were ordinary staples of, of American diet are being priced out of their reach or made so dear that they can barely afford it. Why aren't we taking care of things here at home? I mean, we still have people sleeping in the streets begging for, for uh, food to feed themselves at freeway exits, um, uh, kids who are, are attending substandard schools, uh, people that can't get the health care that they need, uh, people whose retirement is shaky, and, and we, and, and the crime that exists in our cities, and I'm in Cleveland, the crime that exists in our cities, which is horrific, the mass shootings that take place, that it, it, it tears at everyone's hearts, and we want to go around the world telling other people how they should live, spending our money in pursuit of some kind of chimerical dream of, of, of global omnipotence. Give me a break. I mean, really, it's like this is a get real moment in America. It's a moment to start taking care of things here at home. And uh, it, we certainly have to do something to stop this conflict in Ukraine, to, to try to heal the Ukrainian people who have suffered so grievously, to uh, stop the, the deaths of, the, of, of any more civilians and, and soldiers on either side, to stop the uh, continued attacks on the Russian-speaking peoples in, 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 in Donbass. Uh, and so, you know, we can do this. This is doable. That's what Minsk II was about. Uh, it's not like we're going to, you know, recreate uh, or that we have to create something anew. We can, we can simply use a lot of the intelligence that's out there, but there has to be a willingness to do it. And it's not right now, for whatever reason. We need to find that out. And maybe a new Congress 
will ask the questions that this Congress isn't asking. I want to ask you a quick question about Syria. When you were in office, you uh, warned against uh, Obama's potential bombing of Syria back in 2013 after Syria was accused of using chemical weapons. And you famously said that the U.S. was at risk of becoming al-Qaeda's air force. And that was because the insurgency in Syria was dominated by al-Qaeda. And now we know from declassified U.S. documents that have come out that the U.S. administration was well aware that the insurgency was dominated by al-Qaeda. Jake Sullivan wrote to Hillary Clinton, al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. The Defense Intelligence Agency wrote up a memo in uh, 2012 warning that al-Qaeda was dominating the insurgency. So you saw this back then, but I'm wondering, was there an, an awareness among your colleagues in the administration that the insurgency in Syria that the U.S. was supporting was dominated by al-Qaeda? And did anybody, aside from yourself, raise concerns about this, about siding yeah, Kelsey, with- the Kelsey Gabbard and I were the two who raised the concerns. And no one else cared? Uh, no, it's, it, it becomes, um, all of these things go into a black hole. And there's a black hole and then there's a memory hole. <laughs> and uh, what's happening right now goes into a black hole. And then if somebody brings it up, they throw it back into a memory hole. We, we have a real problem with integrity in our governance. Um, I mean, think, you know, again, people who are, are watching or listening to this, think about this. Um, Al-Qaeda was, was involved in 9-11, um, in, in okay. Uh, we blamed Iraq. Um, and then we turned around and funded these terrorists to attack another country. I mean, you, you know, this, there's there's a dirty game being played here, and it's and it's being played by our own government with our tax dollars, I might add. And yes, I knew. And how did I know? Just have my eyes open. I mean, you know, if you don't take the Kool Aid that's passed out, you know, during breaks between votes, you can find out what's happening. I'll give you an example. October 2002, anyone wants to go on the internet and type in Kucinich Iraq analysis, October 2nd, 2002, we'll see that months before the, you know, days before, weeks before the U.S. voted to go to war against Iraq, months before the war started, I put in the hands of over 200 members of Congress an analysis that said Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. Iraq uh, had uh, doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. They have no intention or capability of using uh, anything against the United States. And you know what are we? What is this all about? But that was the central thesis of 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 George Bush's war. And even when I I presented articles of impeachment against him and Dick Cheney for pushing war based on false pretenses, you know the Democratic leadership was involved in in shunting the. Um, uh, the the effort towards an impeachment. So there's never been any accountability. <clears throat> and so how did I know about Syria? My eyes were open. Why did I vote against the Patriot Act? Because I read it. So, you know, <laughs> if you're in Congress, if you're in any position of leadership in the government, you have to pay attention. And you can't just take things at face value. You can't sit at a table and have people come into the room with their with their their letters, their ribbons and everything else. And just because they appear to be smarter uh, or have more experience that you don't ask questions. Like General, uh, you showed us uh, an image of a, of, a, of a missile hitting a missile in the sky. General, 
was that one missile programmed to hit the other missile? You know, I mean, this is, people are swallowing um, schools of whales or pods of whales every day in DC. It's just a sad occasion and members get shoved aside in favor of this, um, uh, th this growing thing, these thought forms that keep pushing us towards, towards war. I mean, we're, we're playing in the flash of World War III right now. And, and it's totally unnecessary, totally unnecessary. Did you see this news recently with Senator Patrick Leahy? He has a new memoir out and he writes in it that during the uh, lead up to the Iraq war that he was approached by uh, some people who he, he didn't know who they were, but he suspects they're intelligence operatives. And they told him to read, to go into a SCIF, uh, a classified setting and read some files that they said would contradict what Dick Cheney was saying publicly about the war. And he went and he read those files and yes, he saw that Cheney was lying. He voted against the war but he didn't make any of this public until now. And I'm wondering if you had any reaction to that. Well, I, I know Pat Lay, great guy. Um, and it's an interesting story. And I, I've, read, I've read of it, I haven't read the book yet. And it should be interesting to read. Here's the game that's played. You go into these secret briefings and they give you information that you can't discuss outside or you violate the rules. You have to sign a paper, you know, that you, at the beginning of every term, members have to sign a paper that they agree to secrecy, okay? I never went to those briefings. I never signed any of those papers. And I knew they'd, you know, they bring you into these briefings so you feel important, but they're lying to you. <laughs> and Pat Leahy, Pat Leahy just proved that. And thank you, Senator Leahy. Um, they just lie, that's what they do. I mean, if I, if I wanted to find out what was happening, uh, you know, I'd just go to the New York Times and what would happen excuse me, no offense, but what would happen then is that uh, intelligence would be leaked to the New York Times. So you go to the committee, check this out, and you read the same thing that was in the New York Times, but because you went into the committee and it was said in the committee, you can't talk about it. Mm. I mean, this is the kind of, oh, this is the way they handcuff members of Congress. Now, that's why I never went to those meetings. Mm. Mm. As we wrap, uh, you know, you were vilified for taking very courageous stances uh, in favor of peace and against war. And right now we're in a, a country where the anti-war movement is feeling pretty decimated. They're not at the level we were of the Iraq era where hundreds of thousands of people were getting out on the streets. So as we wrap, um, your thoughts on how we can revive the anti-war movement and any other thoughts you want to leave us with? First of all, can you hear my dogs barking? Yes, but that's okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. The first thing that we need to do is to quit describing um, a stand for peace as anti-war, because that that semantic construction carries with it uh, the kind of polarity that we're seeking to avoid, because war really is an expression of polarized thinking, mm. us versus them, whoever they are. Um, we, we really need as individuals and collectively to begin to see the world as one, to see the world as interconnected and interdependent. And our, and our goal should be human unity, not, not homogenized, 
not that we're seeing the world merge into one econotechnic system to respect all cultures and the diversity of cultures, but we need to reformulate what this movement is about to protect humanity, to uh, create human and ecological security, because it, it's about the planet in which we live too, which war could destroy, because war is ecocide. So, you know, we are at an inflection point right now in the history of this country and in human history, where we have an opportunity to create a new the world, to create the kind of world that we'd be proud to give to our children, our grandchildren and, and their children. Uh, but we, we cannot do that through squelching dissent. We cannot do that through ignoring um, initiatives to encourage diplomacy, to bring about settlement of, of conflicts. Uh, you know, we are, we, we are enjoined by the scriptures to make peace with our brothers and our sisters. It's a good time to start thinking about that. Dennis Kucinich, former Democratic member of Congress from Ohio and former mayor of Cleveland. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Aaron.